Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When only 0.8% of all known cases of child sexual abuse get convictions, this is proof that the system is rigged against these victims of intimate abuse. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and the voice you just heard there is that of Suzanne Connolly, who was 14 when she first told the RUC that her adoptive father, John Rossi, had repeatedly sexually abused her, and it took 34 years for her to get her father, John Rossi, to court. She spoke recently at the International Safe World Summit hosted by Safe Ireland, and we're going to be bringing you her very powerful talk today. And later on in this episode, you're going to hear from Luke and Ryan Hart, whose father murdered their mother and their sister. And they want to talk about the narrative in the media afterwards, where the media tried to explain how a good man, and I put that in inverted commas, could kill his family. But first... Here's Suzanne Connolly. 34 years ago in 1985, I reported the sexual abuse and rape of me by my father that took place nearly daily over a period of four years when I was aged 10 through 14. I had a school friend and I told her what was happening and she told me that it was very wrong and I was shocked. That year I left home, I went in to live into care told staff and made a statement to the police. He denied it, made no statement, and when interviewed, no further action was taken on lack of evidence. Two years later, he admitted the abuse to my mother, whose first words to me were, I can't believe you could do this to me. My sense is that she was groomed. My social worker visited them both, and he admitted the abuse to her in front of his wife. I had been adopted into that family when I was a baby, and a year later, in 1988, I tracked down and found my birth mother. I was still in care, and so my social worker went to visit her. My birth mother was a savvy woman. Still is. She put a tape recorder behind the sofa and recorded the conversation. The social worker said that, yes, he abused me, but also that I abused him that I enjoyed the power and that I stopped it when I no longer got anything out of it. My my birth mother challenged her and said she was 11. The social worker said there were no other children at risk in that house and I work in child psychiatry and child abuse is my specialty. For decades, I tried to push the case to court going back to the police several times, making multiple statements. In 2004, I went again to the police and said, look, he admitted it to my social worker. 
Surely that's enough to get it into court. The police went to the social worker and asked her, and she denied that my father had admitted the abuse to her. The police came back to me and said, social workers denied it, and I gave them a copy of the tape. Social worker suddenly remembered all the details and handed over her files, but it took the police another seven months to try and get her to make a statement. After that, the director of public prosecutions still decided not to prosecute. Finally, in 2016, after repeatedly chasing up the police, the director of public prosecutions reopened the case and 20 sample counts of child sexual assault and rape were put to my father. He admitted 18 of them and was sentenced last month to five years in prison. He will serve two and a half years of those. I was one of the lucky ones. Of the 100% of known cases of child sexual abuse, 90% don't go to court. Of all of the cases that do, only 8% get convictions. That is not 0.8% of all known cases of child sexual abuse that get convictions. Let that sink in for a second. And that doesn't speak to whether or not those sentences are commensurate. If I asked any sane person in Ireland if they knew a child who was raped by their parent, by their father if a sentence of two and a half years was commensurate, no sane person in Ireland would say yes. The statistics don't include all the cases that aren't reported, where victims feel too intimidated, fearful, or humiliated to come forward. Most victims say the the degradation suffered by other victims in cross-examination in court is the main reason for not speaking out. When only 0.8% of all known cases of child sexual abuse get convictions, this is proof that the system is rigged against these victims of intimate abuse. So how do we change the system? We need a complete overhaul of the criminal trial format. Long overdue. Currently, we have the adversarial trial, which pursues a legal truth, what can be proven beyond reasonable doubt, and ignores an actual truth, what actually happened. This means the system is unjust. The adversarial trial is combative, degrading for the victim, a disincentive for other victims to come forward, a facilitation for plea bargaining, as happened in my case, that removes charges and reduces culpability and sentencing for the accused. And the adversarial trial is the method by which victims and survivors are mere witnesses with no say in how the cases are conducted despite how their lives will be impacted by the outcome of the trial. We can replace the adversarial trial with an inquisitorial trial as is the case in other jurisdictions such as France and the Netherlands. The inquisitorial trial is a fact-finding mission that seeks to find the actual truth, not the legal truth. All parties put forward their understanding of the facts and a jury, or sorry, a judge, not a jury, decides what the actual truth is and decides the outcome, the guilt, innocence and sentence. The inquisitorial trial is not a fix-all. We can learn from other jurisdictions around the world what works well and what doesn't. Be mindful that the system is rigged, not just adversarial trials, so judges and other lawyers need specific training in sexual violence against 
sexual violence crimes against minors in order to be effective in gutting the pervasive pro-pedophilic and victim-blaming prejudice in the legal social welfare system in our society currently. Every time a barrister cross-examines on the basis of reliability or credibility and chooses to victim-blame, this agenda is the system being groomed by a pedophilic or predator agenda. We need vigilance at every turn to eradicate this ubiquitous agenda of patriarchal entitlement, whether it shows up in courts or elsewhere. Government efforts focusing on how to tweak the adversarial trial system is missing the point. Tom O'Malley in NUI Galway is investigating legal reform, looking at issues for victims in court. This skirts the issue. The adversarial trial succeeds in securing so few convictions that it cannot be tweaked to make justice accessible. The system needs a root and branch overhaul in order to incentivise victims coming forward, to end the degradation of victims in cross-examination, to remove plea bargaining that reduces charges against the defendant and results in puny and archaic sentences for heinous crimes. Whether or not a victim gives evidence from behind a screen or if she or he has victim support body with her in court, will not change that 0.8 statistic. The 0.8% figure is the number we must focus on to drive change. That's the legal system. Outside of the legal system, what can we do to help change other systems in place, enabling child abuse? Everything we've discussed so far is a reactive approach, focusing on the victims. We also need a proactive approach. Society is sitting on its hands when it comes to paedophilia generally. We find it too toxic to understand, can't get our heads around it, so we don't try and we don't respond. Sex beast headlines are common reactions, but they fail to make headway in dismantling this hidden, this hidden, insidious scourge that feeds off one in three children in our society today, destroying lives and our collective empowered future. We need a spotlight on predators, not just victims. We need to address paedophilic predators head on, shine the light on what paedophilia is, the patriarchal entitlement that drives predators to act out their sexual violence on children. Right now, society is effectively saying to predators, with that statistic, carry on. The chances you'll be caught or convicted are so slim that child sexual abuse is effectively legal in this country. and not just this country. Other countries, however, run catchment programs to encourage would-be predators and predators to come forward and seek help. In Germany, there are state-paid ads on buses and what have you, pictures of men, a man looking at a child, and the strap line reads, do you like children too much? Ring this number. Most predators will not be healed from this type of help, but they can be helped to join the dots and have their worst-case scenario, prison, social outcasts, loss of contact with their family, connected mentally with the behaviour to give them pause. These these programmes are of limited help. 
professionally run programmes here in Ireland, in England and in the United States were shelved after it was found that they served to teach men how to stay one, one step ahead and not get caught. In other cases, participants' reoffending increased. Not all paedophiles are predators. There is a gradation. Some paedophiles can be helped. Some would-be predators may be stopped. Some will not. Predators of intimate abuse are often sociopaths who feel no guilt for their actions, often minimising their behaviour, with zero empathy for their victims, often victim-blaming and grooming entire families while they continue with impunity. My father's probation report said his attitude towards me was callous. In a police statement, a cousin said, my father said to her, yes, I did it, but what harm did it do? We must work with the paedophiles whom we can help and expose the truth about the paedophilia, about paedophilia at every turn to educate ourselves about the nature of it, its perpetrators, the impact on victims, and the systemic bias permeated throughout our legal, societal, and cultural systems, enabling the sociopathy behind this endemic, insidious norm. So that's about society and the legal system and how it's enabling child abuse. But what can we do as survivors? Healing from trauma is about making the unconscious conscious. Trauma is a form of toxicity living in the body. It unconsciously spills out into our lives when we can't or won't address it. That's why so many people with trauma in their stories have disheveled lives. The body is trying to rid the system of the trauma by processing it unconsciously in that person's relationships, how they spend their time, often self-medicating or self-harming, and how they spend their lives. Without healing that trauma, it, we run the risk of repetition wounding where we recreate old dynamics in our adult lives over and over in order to clear the first imprint of trauma from the past. We need to heal that original trauma. So how do we heal wounds? In my experience as a healer, there's three things you need to do. You need to heal the original wound, you need, which is clearing unprocessed trauma out of the system. You need to remove foreign energy out of your system, family-inherited trauma from intergenerational trauma down the line, or residue from predators. And in 100% of all cases that I work with adult uh, survivors of child sexual assault, they all have dark energy in their system from the predator that results in debasement of self-worth, sense of shame, feeling dirty, classic examples. We need to heal those. So how do we uh, and the third thing is to restore lost energy lost through the trauma. Wounds are unmet needs. We need to meet those needs in ourselves. We need to heal the wounds by being unconditionally loving to a loving adult to our younger selves that our younger selves craved back then. We need to nurture, rescue, nurture and empower the fragmented parts of ourselves, the fragmented, shattered parts of the psyche within the self which are, young, which are our younger selves still caught in the trauma loops forged in the moments of assault, betrayal, rape and loss, etc. But therapy alone is not enough. We also need to retrieve energy that we lost in the trauma and clear out foreign energy that doesn't belong to us. We need to make the self whole, retrieve the essence of the lost self by trauma, that's lost by trauma, part of me died, I felt derealized, I felt like I wasn't all here. We do that by looking for, reclaiming, and reintegrating those parts back into ourselves. And we need to remove the foreign energy, as I described. 
but what can we do as a society? We need to no longer see the patriarchal norms as acceptable. Once you see them, you can't unsee them. You need to step out of the domination trance that we heard about yesterday. Step out of the mindset and thinking that normalizes these statistics as normal or unchangeable. We need a radical overhaul in our own sense of power and action to move out of intractable and into change. We need to empower ourselves and our children by becoming informed and acting accordingly. We need to know the statistics of child abuse and know how endemic it is in the world. We need to teach consent to our kids. It's not okay for people to hug you if you don't want that. And I will ask you before wiping your vagina after you've used the potty, your body is yours. We need to educate ourselves at events like this one. Spread that knowledge and speak candidly about this hidden, festering sexual violence against kids. Know that it is everywhere and that it cannot hide in plain sight with silence as its enabler if we all speak out about it. Use your voice. Call it. Every time you see pedophilic agenda in the media, she was asking for it. What harm does it do? Lolita loved it. And be vigilant against its pervasive force. And finally, recognize that the pedophilic agenda is fed and sustained by patriarchy and its entitlement and will only be dismantled by dismantling patriarchy from our society, culture and thinking in a systemic and deliberate way. Thank you for everything you're doing. That was Suzanne Connolly there and I think we all need to listen to her. She has a very important message about a conversation that is not happening in this country and in many parts of the world. Now, on a warm summer day in July 2016, Claire Hart and her 19-year-old daughter Charlotte went for an early morning swim at their local leisure centre in Spalding in Lincolnshire. They were shot dead that morning in the car park by Charlotte's father, Lance Hart. Charlotte's sister and Claire's sons, Luke and Ryan Hart, spoke recently at the International Safe World Summit hosted by Safe Ireland. And we're going to bring you their talk now, which very much centres around the way in which that horrible event was reported by the media and the media's attempts to try and explain how a so-called good man could snap the way he did. And I use snap in inverted commas as well. Here they are. They're amazing speakers. It's a very powerful story. Luke and Ryan Hart. Thank you very much for having us. Um, So I'm Luke. And this is Ryan. We don't want to be like Ant and Deck. I'm the tall one. Um, so, yeah, we've got a story here today that we'd like to share with you. Um, and we'll both read it together. On the 19th of July, 2016, something unimaginable happened to me and my younger brother, Ryan. Our father shot and killed our mother, Claire, and our 19-year-old sister, Charlotte. Our father then committed suicide. The murders occurred in our hometown, in the car park of a swimming pool. And we only survived the attack as we were both working abroad at the time. Only five days before, we had raised enough money and we moved our mother and sister away from our abusive father into a small rental house. The press coverage which followed the murders of our mum and our sister described the murders as incredibly rare and an isolated incident. One report even went as far as calling it understandable. 
Our struggles had been invisible and the world only saw us trying to escape. However, the male sympathising angle of the reporting revealed our default societal perspective. Even among close female friends of our mother, numerous rationalisations were performed on our father's behalf. Some asked if she had had an affair, somehow believing that the events entertained the question, and apparently believing that if she had, which she hadn't, it would somehow explain what had happened. Our sister Charlotte was ignored throughout. Even something as apparently trivial as the media referring to the suicide note that our father had written, that showed the control our father still had over the narrative. The same control he had always exerted over our lives. It was a suicide note to our father, but a murder note to our mum and our sister. So we had to witness locals and newspapers attempting and failing to explain how a good man could kill his family, rather than acknowledge that this was a terrorist who had lived in clear sight. Many simply believed that if they could explain our father's actions, then they had resolved the issue. However, the existing myths were propagated once again, and our tragedy was treated as an isolated and a rare incident. Apparently, nothing needed to change. Yet for Ryan and I, it was clear that much needed to change. In particular, the media reporting that we had witnessed. This became particularly evident in the police investigation that followed. It was uncovered that our father had been searching online for reports of men who killed their families for months before he killed ours. He would have seen the media providing these men with a public funeral and justifying their actions on their behalf. Unfortunately, our father received the same eulogy, further propagating the entitlement and further propagating the abuse. Growing up, I had never identified as a a victim of domestic abuse, and we did not realise the danger that our family was in. I had always interpreted our father's behaviour as unpleasant, disrespectful and aggressive, but never dangerous because he never hit us. I never considered that to be controlled is to be abused. Our father's behaviour felt wrong, but we did not feel empowered to complain at the injustice of our treatment because there was no single significant event. Yet we now know that a mountain can be built from grains of sand and the effects of aggregation can be truly devastating. Despite our father's behaviour, Luke... Um, our sister Charlotte and myself were very successful at school and sport. Our successes simply reinforced the idea that we were living an ordinary life. In giving our father the benefit of the doubt, we had assumed that he couldn't have hindered us that much. However, the truth was that we were overly compliant because we were terrified. We were terrified of breaking rules. We were overachievers because we knew that we had to provide the life for our family that our father had taken from us. Our successes were indications of the relentless pressure on our lives, not of our empowerment. So it was only after the murder of our mum and Charlotte that the police investigation revealed just how much our father had distorted our perspective growing up. Firstly, we discovered that our father had actually been married before he met our mother, 
and he had left his previous wife because she did not want children. Immediately upon meeting our mother, our father took away her contraceptive pills and demanded that she would be having his child. And that was me. The next key event was when our father moved our family to an isolated and run-down farmhouse when I was only three. Neither of our parents worked for a decade. We'd always been told by our father that the move was so that I would not have another life-threatening natality attack, which was discovered through an anaphylactic shock that I was rushed to hospital to save my life for. Our father insisted that this allowed us to grow our own food and I would always be safe. However, the investigation revealed that it was already known that I had a nut allergy. And my father had fed me nuts to demonstrate control over my life to our mother. So within three years of meeting our mother, our father had created dependency, isolation, and reduced our mother to poverty. A perfect recipe for control. And from this point on, our father simply needed to operate these levers. He created a false reality for Charlotte, Ryan and I to live under, which we were oblivious to for our entire lives. The police identified that our father had been writing drafts of his murder note. He had in fact been planning to kill his entire family for weeks before we had even planned to move out of the house. He was just updating his justification each time. We even found a to-do list that our father had produced in the days running up to the event It was so coldly ordinary. It included buying a second-hand fridge that he only planned to use for two days. He even returned a leased car on time to avoid the late fee. And he purchased a parking ticket 20 minutes before killing our mum, our sister and himself. He was functioning as he always had. Nothing had changed within him. There was certainly no breakdown or change in his character. It's now clear to Ryan and I that the men who murder their families hold traditional masculine beliefs and they live what appear to be ordinary lives. But this is exactly the problem. Our father had no breakdown and he had no collapse of his belief system. He had simply followed those views that he had always held to their conclusion with no concern for us as human beings. Men kill because they believe that they can. And in fact, in many cases, they believe that they should to prove that they are men. Domestic abuse is far too common for it only to be perpetrated by anomalous monsters. And currently, it is unfortunately the victimised and vulnerable women and children who are left to pursue the lives of fugitives, who are incarcerated within refuges. Meanwhile, perpetrators such as our father were free to continue their lives however they so wished. But to tackle this, we all need to be braver and ask those difficult questions. When we were organising rental accommodation for our mother and sister, we were struck how trivial this request was and how expert the estate agents were at facilitating, facilitating escape for women and children from abusers. No one recognised the danger despite being able to assist us in our escape. And on the day that we escaped the family home, we needed to break into the safe our father had installed in the garage with our mother's personal documents inside. As we were frantically packing the moving van in front of the house, the locksmith simply nodded, again implicitly acknowledging that he understood what was going on, but yet again not a single question was raised. 
We believe that we all need to be braver in asking those difficult questions. Domestic abuse always leaks out, and it's all of our responsibility to help those who are suffering. We cannot force women and children to resolve these issues themselves. Domestic abuse survivors have no shortage of strength. Unfortunately, the strength of enduring unlivable situations becomes our liability as we learn to deal with those situations when we should be screaming for help. The rights and freedoms of children and women are more important than any ideas of possession that men may have over their families. Domestic violence is often referred to a twisted act of love. A family is not a prison and love is not hate. When we are forced to invert the meaning of words in order to avoid changing our beliefs, we should realise how far wrong we have gone. The emotive language used in the press to describe the actions of abusers is diversionary. The language we should be using is ideological. Our father coldly rationalised his killings in his murder note, claiming that he was non-violent, then proceeding to murder our mum and our sister. This was his kind of reasoning, to create a moral crown for himself and then to um, break it as necessary, whilst he always maintained an air of hypocritical self-righteousness. Our mother and our sister had been through so much more suffering in their lives than our father, but they had only chosen love in response to their suffering. And they showed Ryan and I that our father's behaviour was not understandable and it was not inevitable as the media had claimed. It was an active choice that our father made every single day. And he chose to lay that burden of his existence upon all of us. Our mother and child became strengthened through the challenges that they faced. And it's from their strength and from their lesson that Ryan and I were forged. So thank you very much. That was Luke and Ryan Hart there. And I'm very grateful to them and also to the International Safe World Summit, which was hosted by Safe Ireland in the Mansion House in Dublin recently. We'll be bringing you more from that summit in future episodes. But that's all we have time for today. Remember, you can download the podcasts wherever you get your usual podcasts. And also, if you want to write a review of us, we'd be really grateful. Go to iTunes and you can do that or you can just tell all your friends about us. The podcast was produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. And we'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.